0: to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. My name is Steve Jantz, and um, Chrissy already uh, uh, introduced me a little bit. My wife Sarah's here as well with me this morning, and um, it's always this is just a highlight for me to be able to come down to Kelowna uh, and and be with you folks. I love I love what Pastor Meldon. And and the team, the leadership team here is doing, and uh, be praying for Melvin and Charlotte. They're suffering big time this morning, and you know we've got the balmy minus eight or minus nine. Yeah, uh, we have Bibles. If you need a Bible, you just raise your hand, and our ushers will make sure that you get one. Uh, the Bible is important here at Harvest, I know, and uh, we want to, um, whatever we believe has to line up here, and this needs to be the foundation. So we're going to, if you don't have a Bible, make sure, or an app, make sure you Get one of those because we are gonna. This is where we're gonna be this morning. Anyway, before we begin, though, I'd like to maybe just mention to you a little bit of what's going up uh, on uh, on what's going on up in Salmon Arm. There we go. You know where Salmon Arm is, you folks down in Kelowna. A few of you. All right, it is in the in your province. I know that Kelownaites just kind of think the world stops, you know, at West Kelowna and maybe up in uh, Lake Country and then beyond that. Who knows. But if you drive about an hour and a half uh, north of here, kind of, you're going to get to Salmon Arm. And then if you keep going on the highway Trans-Canada towards Kamloops, you're going to come to a turnoff, Sunnybrae Canoe Point Road. And you're going to see a big sign that says Sunnybrae Bible Camp. And underneath that, you're going to see a sign that says Miller College of the Bible. And um, my wife Sarah and I have been in uh, Sunnybrae or in Tappan. Um, for, uh, since 2011, since the summer of 2011, and in 2012, we launched uh, an extension campus of Miller College of the Bible. Our home campus is out in Saskatchewan, just south of Swift Current, been around since 1932 out there, and uh, the Lord has been kind and gracious, in the, and the, the school there has grown to the point where we were turning students away, and so... God led us to open up uh, the, uh, the, the campus out in, in Sunnybrand. We're just grateful. We're full this year. We've got like 89 students on campus, and I think we've got room for one more. We have room, one bed open for a guy, but we're, you know, sort of halfway through our second semester, uh, but it already looks like we're filling up for the fall, which is exciting. We've, I think we've got room for, right now, the applications are coming in. We've got room for a handful of men and, and a few more ladies um, but we're just excited. If, if the Lord reminds you to pray for young people and their future trajectory, would you pray for Miller College of the Bible? And there's some other great Bible colleges out there as well. We're not the only one, but would you pray that God would continue to keep us true to this, to the word? That would be uncompromising as we teach it. Um, we have a couple of events coming up in March that, that I'll maybe mention now and maybe next week as well. I get to be with you next week as well, so I'm excited about that. But on March the 9th, I, you have a cereal uh, party. I'd like to be at that. I'm guessing it's not going to be like, you know, harvest crunch that's going to be, um, although that would work with, the, you know, I'm guessing it's Fruit Loops and, and Lucky Charms and that kind of stuff, um, and I'd like to be there. But in the afternoon, we're actually having an open house up in Salmon Arm. so if uh, you're done, when you're done with your uh, little uh, party, cereal party, why don't you pack the car and come up to Salmon Arms, we'll, we'll serve you some really great cinnamon buns, we're known for that up there. And uh, two hours, from two to four, we'd love to have you. And then later in the month, in March, we have two college days where we invite, uh, you know, potential students to come and hang out for the day. And they get to, there's really nothing special about it other than they get to sit in class and hear our teachers teach the word and uh, connect with some of our students. So that's coming up in March. You can go to the website at millercollege.ca and find that. Um, Like I said, it is a privilege for me to be with you here today and uh, and next week as well. And when Meldon called and said, would you consider coming and um, preaching for two weeks in a row, he said, you could do like a, like a mini-series, well, two weeks probably isn't, we're not going to call it a series, but there is going to be part one today and part two next week. So, so if I utterly and fully offend you this week, come back next week, and uh, maybe it'll be better, you know, you never know. I don't expect that I will, um, as, I, as, as long as I'm faithful to this. God is going to be glorified, and I'm just excited. I'd like to begin, though, by reading a verse that's going to be on the screen for you. And uh, So I'm going to make some introductory, introductory remarks, and then we're going to go to our main text, which is in Ephesians. But, but this is what I want you to, to see. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read these words. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now we're going to just keep that slide up there for a while because I want to talk about this a little bit. This kind of gives us the inter- this lays the foundation of what I want to talk to. I want to talk to you about the gospel to this week and next week. That you you here at Harvest. This is not a topic that doesn't get discussed here. You know the gospel. If you're faithfully coming here. To harvest, you get it. Pastor Malvin is a gospel guy. He's a cross-centered preacher. And that's what you are. That's part of your DNA here at harvest. And so I figured I want to just keep, you know, pouring fuel onto that fire of the gospel. But what I want you to notice here is the, the one thing that the devil, our enemy, Satan, is, is after doing here in Kelowna. He's got one goal in mind in Kelowna. He's got one goal in mind in British Columbia, in Canada, around the world. And his one goal, his main goal in this world is to keep believers from seeing the glory of Jesus. The devil does not want you to see the glory of Jesus. And and actually, Paul in this verse says there's a few things that, that the enemy, the devil, has blinded people's minds. The devil is real. Uh, and and I'm not going to take time to to, um, prove that from the word of God, but let me just say to you, unequivocally, biblically, the devil is a real being. And he wants to blind people. Well, there's a few things. He wants to blind people from, first of all, seeing light. He does not want people to see light. He does not want people to see the gospel, and the word gospel means good news. We'll, we'll get there in a, in, a, in a few minutes from now. And then the reason he doesn't want people to see the light of the gospel is so that he can keep people blind from seeing the glory of Jesus. He doesn't want them to see glory. Miriam um, Webster, I like her. She, gives, she helps me. She should help you too with words. And she defines the word glory as great beauty and splendor. Something marked by beauty, magnificence, and brilliance. Now, we live in a uh, context, you in, in, Sa- in Kelowna, myself, just outside of Salmon Arm on the Shoe Swap, we live in a beautiful, beautiful place in, in, in Canada. I mean, we lived in Manitoba for 16 years, and it's got its own beauty. It does. I'm, I, I believe it. It really does. Maybe not so much when it's minus 800, like it has been this past week, but it's got its beauty, but man, we live in this, in this beautiful part of, of the world and part of Canada, and we see majesty. If we're talking about glory, and glory is this idea of, of seeing something that's marked with magnificence and majesty and brilliance and beauty, we live in, in this majestic nature that we call the Rocky Mountains. I'm not sure if these are really called the Rockies, but they're kind of part of that whole thing, right? The mountains. And it's beautiful. I mean, we, we we've some of you maybe have traveled south and you've seen the Grand Canyon. That's magnificent. I've never stood on the ground of the Grand Canyon, but I've flown over it a few times. And it's amazing, from 30,000 feet in the air or 25,000 feet, however high we're flying, when you're flying over the Grand Canyon, it is magnificent, this nature that we get to observe. You know, I talked about Manitoba. We cannot beat the prairie sunsets. There's something very spectacular about sunsets in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, especially in the fall when, when that, that golden grain is kind of blown in the wind and, and the sun is setting. It's unbelievable. Uh, the roaring ocean, Sarah and I, began our ministry in Prince Edward Island. and Man, some of those nor'easters that came through PEI or the Maritimes, and we would, we would venture out, take our car down to... Pamir Island, or we've been down to Peggy, Peggy's Cove, and, and to see those r- waves just crashing against the rocks, there's something very majestic about that, isn't there? Glory, there's glory everywhere that you look, glory. How about beauty in people, um, the, your loved ones? Um, think about my wife, in my estimation, the most beautiful person in this world. Now, you're probably not gonna agree with me, and if you're married, you shouldn't agree with me, You might be in trouble if you agree with me at this point, (laughs) right? But in my mind, in my eyes, beautiful. Uh, We are coming through Vernon this morning, and I phoned our son, who is pastoring in Vernon, and we've got two grandkids, uh, Tyler and and, um, Stephanie have, uh, Mia, who's four, four, yeah, good, I'm I'm looking at uh, getting the nod, and Eli, who's just over two, and uh, a third one on the way, man, there are... Um, no more beautiful kids than those two little characters. And on the way home today, this is why I like coming down here. I get to stop in and see them. It's amazing. If you're a grandparent, you know what I'm talking about. You just can't, you can't um, elevate the beauty of people in your life enough. And then there's sp- even splendor in, in, in temporal, man-infused type things. I'm a car guy. So I'm looking on the internet this week, just kind of recreationally, and I come across the Alfa Romeo GTV, the new Alfa Romeo that's coming out in 2020. I'm telling you, that is a beautiful car. The, just the design, it's got like 600 horsepower. Guys, that's amazing. A little car. Um, it's a throwback from you know in the late 60s, early 70s when they had the Alfa Romeo GTV. Um, for, for some of you others, maybe it's some sort of design, this, this splendor and temporal man-infused stuff, like. A new, a new kitchen remodeling or, or a great hockey game, you know, when the Calgary Flames beat the Vancouver Canucks? That's amazing. It's awesome. I love it. Okay, well, okay. Just, are you awake? Are you with me? So there's man-infused, there's glory everywhere that we look, right? In nature that, as a matter of fact, the Bible says, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. You go out and you look there and you see glory. There's glory, there's majesty, there's beauty, there's splendor everywhere. And the devil doesn't care if you see that glory. As a matter of fact, he's thrilled if that's where you stop seeing glory, in nature. Did you know there are a lot of atheists who love nature? Think it's spectacular, think it's, there's glory there? There are, a lot of them, here in Kelowna. A lot of, lot of atheists who think that there's tremendous beauty in people. A lot of atheist people who reject and hate God, who think there's a lot of glory and, and uh, beauty and splendor in man-infused things. And if the devil can keep you there, he wins. He keeps you in darkness. What he doesn't want you to see is the glory of Jesus. He doesn't want you to see that. Settle for all the other glories. He's okay with that. And if he can distract you, he's going to keep you in darkness. And here's a fear of mine, Harvest Kelowna. Here's a fear of mine because I know it's real in my life. And if it's real in my life, I'm assuming it's going to be real in your life too. That sometimes even those of us who love Jesus, who have been redeemed by the work of the cross, who have been set free from darkness and the bondage and slavery to sin, even We who are followers of Jesus at one time or another, maybe even today, somehow the gospel of the glory of Jesus has lost its splendor. It can happen in my life and in your life that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus begins to fade in my life and in your life. It happens easily. We're very easily distracted. We're a fickle people. Our hearts go a thousand different ways almost every week. And when they start going horizontal versus vertical, we start losing sight of and we become blind to. And man, if the enemy doesn't want that in your life, I don't know what he wants. That's exactly what he wants. He wants to keep the unbeliever, those who don't know Jesus, in utter darkness. And if he can just kind of bend your mind and your eyes away from the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if he can bend your mind away from that, he also wins in your life because he knows you're distracted. I had a preacher talk one time about how we need to guard against the gospel becoming like a smooth stone. So I picked this stone up on the beach. Sarah and I like to sit on the beach in the summers. And I don't know about you, if you're walking along some of those stony beaches, uh, do you look down and, and you pick up stones? My our, we were out this summer um, at one of the lakes around here with our, our granddaughter and grandson and our kids, and we came back with a bucket of stones. I don't know what, what it is about stones. Um, but but th- this preacher said, make sure that the gospel doesn't become like a smooth stone to you. Y- you, know, you know what's amazing about smooth stones, what amazes me? Is that a smooth stone is so utterly forgettable. You throw a smooth stone in your pocket, you'll forget about it. Try that with a jagged stone, one with a bunch of sharp corners. And when you sit down, I sit down right now with that smooth stone, I'll forget about it. Three weeks later, I'm grabbing a pair of pants that didn't get put in the wash, and I put it on, it's like, what's in my pocket? Oh, there's a smooth stone. You don't do that with a jagged stone. A jagged stone, man, I'll tell you, you sit down, you move, it it pokes you, it it presses against your skin, and, and you know it's there. And I'm afraid that sometimes the gospel becomes like, this utterly forgettable smooth stone in our life. And in my life, even as a pastor, that did happen. The majesty, the splendor, the beauty of the gospel had lost its luster for quite a few years in my ministry to the point where I kind of saw the gospel as good for those who didn't know Jesus. They needed the gospel, but you know, for the majority here, and I don't know your hearts this morning, but I'm assuming that for many of you, you know Jesus here this morning. It's why you've gotten up on a Sunday morning to come here. And if you don't know Jesus, maybe you've been c- compelled by the Spirit of God. You have been compelled by the Spirit of God to be here. Maybe a friend brought you. Maybe your parents made you come. Maybe you just came by yourself because there's something drawing you. That's, that's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is drawing you kindly and graciously. But did you know, believer, that the gospel's for you Today? It's not just for the unbeliever. Oh, how desperately an unbelieving person needs the gospel, but the gospel is needed by you too. You know what the word gospel means. It means good news. It comes from the Greek word euangelion. And any German speakers here? I think I've asked this here before. Any German speakers? Anybody? German? What's the German word for gospel? Evangelium, right? Euangelion. So they're actually closer to the Greek than we are, the word gospel, but it means good news. That's what it is. And so and so the title of my sermon uh, this morning for you may seem a little bit like a contradiction, a little bit of an oxymoron. The shocking bad news of the gospel. If gospel means good news, what in all the whole world do I mean by that? The shocking bad news of the good news. Doesn't doesn't make sense maybe, and yet I think it is it does make a lot of biblical sense. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and this, is, so that's my introduction. Where are we at? Oh, we got lots of time. There you go. I've laid the foundation. Now we're going to the text. This is what I want you to see. And, and this morning, by God's grace, we're going to get all the way down to verse, um, the end of verse 3. That's, that's the plan. Think we can handle three verses in the next little while? I'm hoping we can. And then next week, we'll pick it up uh, in verse 4 and carry on, but... But let me go ahead and read the whole text this morning, and it will set, in your, hopefully in your mind and your heart, the trajectory of where we're going. So follow along in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this not of your own doing, it's a gift of God Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And can I just let you know then, based on this text, that there is shocking bad news in the gospel, it becomes clear in this text and in so many other places in the Bible that for the good news, the gospel, that you euangelion to explode in our minds, we first need to understand some heavy, heavy truths which really are bad news. And so this morning what I'd like to do from this text is I want to make three observations and then there's going to be a shocking conclusion that you're going to see in this text. So three observations that will kind of give you a bit of uh, where we're going. And here's observation number one. We all are born spiritually dead. You were born into this world. I, not March 29th, 1965, Fairview, Alberta. Steve Jantz was born. And I was born with breath in my lungs. And I came in that sense. I was alive in my mother's womb. But for the first time, I'm breathing on my own. I'm alive. And yet in my living physically, I'm spiritually dead. I was born spiritually dead. That's what it says here. It says in verse one, and you were dead in the trespass, in your trespasses or in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not just sick. Sometimes people like to soften this idea of our separation from God by saying, well, we're kind of sick. And there's, there's actually some, you know, there'd be some illustrations of that like, in the Old Testament, this idea of leprosy being sin and, but, but let me just make this clear statement that, that you're not just sick spiritually, that you and I are dead spiritually when we're born into this world. We're dead spiritually. Um, the, the word death, once again, thank you, Webster, the word death means the end of life, the total and permanent cessation of all the vital functions of an organism. So an organism, when it comes to the point where all the vital functions cease, there's death, and there's there's no difference then in physical death, in that sense, uh, as there is also in spiritual death, and we know where spiritual death came. We don't have time this morning, but we could turn back to Genesis chapter 3, where God made it exceedingly clear to Adam You can eat of all the fruit in this garden, but you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you eat of that tree, you will what? Surely die. And uh, we know what happened. The serpent that was more crafty than any other animal comes to the woman, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, because he convinced her, he said, has God really said? And he says, you should eat this fruit. Disobey God because God's just holding you back. He He's holding holding out on you. So go ahead and eat the fruit because you're going to become wise like God. And there's always some truth in Satan's lies. And once again, don't have time to unpack that there was some truth in what Satan said through the serpent that day. But oh, how deceived Eve became and Adam when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Delight, delight, desire, passion. She said, In her mind, this is probably not how she equated it all, but in her mind, this is the conclusion she came to, that fruit is more delightful, more desirable, will bring more pleasure than God, which is is the case with every sin. Every sin we commit, we're in essence saying, this is more desirable than God. And I turn from God and I obey my fleshly desires, Eve, her delights, and that the tree was to be desired to make one. Why? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and then their eyes both were open, and they knew they had been duped. They knew it right away. And we read in Romans chapter five, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, watch now, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Can I just say to you that on that day when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, rebelled against God, shook their fist at God, and said, the fruit is more desirable than you, God. God was very merciful and kind and gracious to them in that Adam and Eve continued to breathe air and live. They didn't die, right, is that true? We knew that, they got kicked out of the garden, and so God was merciful to them. They kept breathing, but death did come and they eventually did die, but what most certainly did happen that day is that Adam and Eve died spiritually. And this vitality of life that Adam and Eve had with God prior to this sin, this act of rebellion, was stripped from them. And they now were separated from God because of their sin. And even back then, God in his great mercy towards us made a plan. Even before before God even created this world, he knew it was gonna happen. And the cross was always God's plan. And God says to Adam and Eve and to Satan, the seed of the woman's coming one day, and Satan, he's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And he's talking about that was a promise to, through the seed of, of Eve that there would be a child born one day, the Messiah, Jesus himself. And so death is a real thing. We're born into this world spiritually dead. We need to wrestle with that. We need to understand that. You know, I... Um, I've probably shared this with you too, but I'm always amazed that in, in this we have three kids and now we've got grandkids, on the two, two and two more on the way. Um, I've never once had to teach my kids to be bad. It's amazing. It's like, like come on, Tyler and Denver, you guys are, are way too selfless. You should be more selfish. Would you, would you fight a little bit more? Would you, come on, never had to do that. Why? Why? Because they've been born with a sinful nature. They've been born dead in their sin, in their trespasses and sins. It's just that's who they are. It's who you are, it's who I am. Here's observation number two from the text here. We all follow the ways of the world. Paul goes on and says, following the course of the world. So so we're dead in our trespasses in sin, in sin, and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world. Um and, and this idea of, of the world is not, we're not talking about the globe here. We're not talking about planet Earth. When, when Paul uses this word world, he's talking about the world's system of values and the world's way of doing things. And he's saying, not only are all people dead in their sins, but all people follow the system of this world, the values of this world, the, the, the way that the world does things. And as a matter of fact, Paul carries on in this very text to give it a description of what that looks like. If you just skip down Um, to uh, verse three. Paul says this, and this is a description of what it means to follow the course of the world. He says, among whom you all once lived, here it is, in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind. That's what it means to walk and follow the world. It's just to do what you want to do. Remember, some of you are old enough to remember the 70s and the 60s. And the sort of the motto of the day was, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. That's a world's way of thinking. That is is following the passions of your heart. And and today, we kind of say the same thing, except we add something that they didn't have in the 70s. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you do whatever you want. So, So the philosophy's not changed a whole lot since the 60s. They've added a little disclaimer on the end, just make sure it doesn't hurt, which is ridiculous because anytime you sin, it's gonna hurt somebody. Guess who it's gonna hurt? At the very least, it's gonna hurt you. So, but we kind of, we know you appease our mind a little bit. We think it's okay. And so not only are we dead in, all of us are dead in sin, we also follow the ways of this world, pursuing the passions of our flesh, our nature, our sinful state. And we do exactly what everybody else does, looking to find meaning and joy and satisfaction and pleasure in the things of this world. And you know what happens when you spend your entire life looking to be satisfied in this world? You know what happens? You come to the end of your life and you're still wanting. You're left wanting. Because it never satisfies. It's temporal. It's here one moment and then gone the next. Here's observation number three. We all follow the devil and disobey God. By nature, in our sinful state, as we're following the ways of the world, Paul is exceedingly clear here that we all follow the devil. Maybe not consciously, maybe, I, I don't think that most people here in Kelowna who don't love Jesus and who don't know Jesus, I don't think they get up in the morning and say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, I've decided to follow, oh sorry, Jesus, I've decided to follow Satan. They don't, they don't sing the, uh, the opposite of what we just sang. People don't get up and do that. But in an an unaware way, people who do not follow God indeed do follow Satan. And the Bible's clear here. Paul goes on and says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're all sons of disobedience because we've inherited from Adam and Eve. We're born with sinful nature, so by nature we disobey God. And because we disobey God, The default, then, is that we become followers of the devil, even though we might never articulate it that way. I think there'd be people in in your block where you live, your little cul-de-sac or whatever road you live on, and and you know that just down on the road in the corner, there's that 75-year-old granny who's just so beautiful and lovely, but doesn't know Jesus. If you were to knock on her door and say, hey, did you know you're a follower of the devil? She'd be horrified for you to say that, probably, probably. But oh, she only knew that disobedience to God is really, in essence, a pledging allegiance to the devil. So I'm not following Jesus, I'm following the devil. Remember Bob Dylan? He sang a song like that once. you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And that's the truth. It's one or the other. And the enemy, the devil, will use our fleshly desires to do that. And, and here's how he does it. Here's how the devil, here's how we become followers of the devil. Um, joy, gladness, satisfaction is what everybody in this world is after. We know that, right? I've already talked about that. And the devil blinds people's minds into thinking that they're actually finding true joy and true satisfaction, and true, pl- true pleasure in the things that he's offering them, all the while never truly satisfying them. And so he blinds them. We come back to that text in 2 Corinthians that he's blinded the minds from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ so that they wouldn't say, that's where joy is, that's where satisfaction is, but rather in a new TV or a new home or a new vacation or, or whatever it is. And some of these things are, are in and of themselves absolutely okay. But oh, how the devil is a, is a manipulator and a strategist we read about in later in ephesians chapter 6 we, we read about the wiles of the devil or the strategies of the devil the devil's been around for millennium he's been around for thousands of years and he knows exactly what your weakness is and he's a master strategist he knows exactly how he can dupe you and dupe Kelowna and british columbia and canada into thinking lies and believing lies And so we take up the armor of God, Paul says in chapter 6, so that we can stand against the wiles, the strategies, the schemes of the devil. Now, here's the shocking conclusion that I want us to get to. Here's the shocking conclusion, and it's at the end of verse 3 Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath like everybody else in this world, we're children of wrath. You should ask, Steve, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a child of wrath? And all I would say to you is this, that because of our deadness in sin, because we follow the ways of the world and satisfy our own passions, because we carry out the passions of the flesh and we're influenced and directed by the devil, that God's anger and his disdain towards sin rests on you and me. That God is angry towards sin. God hates sin. As a matter of fact, there's, there's this real, and we, wow, man, I'll tell you, when, we, when I teach Romans to our second years, we talk about this. But do you have a biblical category in your mind to understand that the Bible makes it exceedingly clear that not only does God, we like to say God hates the sin but loves the and that's not wrong. It's not wrong to say that. The Bible, it's clear. For God so loved the world that he gave, so that's not wrong to say that. But you have do you have biblical thinking in biblical categories to say, yes, God loves the sinner, but he also hates the sinner? There's like 12 texts in the Bible that say specifically, it's not just that God hates sin, but he hates the sinner. And at the same time, he loves us. How does that work? Can I just say his thoughts are higher than your thoughts and his ways are higher than your ways and you might not be able to understand it, but God is bigger than that and he knows what that means, that he hates sinners and he loves sinners. But God, being a child of wrath, by nature, like all mankind, means that I sit under the indignation of God, his anger, his wrath against sin. He hates sin. And justly and rightly, you and I deserve God's judgment and wrath upon ourselves. So, as I was thinking about this very statement, I was thinking, how are the folks in Kelowna going to respond to a statement like that? You are a child of wrath by nature. And God hates your sin and is rightly and justly going to pour out his wrath wrath and indignation and anger on you one day against your sin, unless there's some other way out. How's Kelowna going to respond? And and this is my, my thought, because I don't think you respond much differently than I would. It seems a tad harsh, doesn't it? Like it's a piece of fruit, Steve. Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit. Um... I told a little white lie. Come on, God's anger is going to burn against me? Seems a tad harsh. Um, I mean, the list is endless of things that you can fill in the blank there. And you might say, back off, Steve, take it easy. With this wrath stuff, God's punishment, his anger, his indignation, we live in Canada after all, we don't talk that way, right? Canadians don't talk that way. Americans might, but we don't. And one of the reasons you and I recoil against this kind of talking, that I somehow have God's wrath resting on me. And, and, and Jesus is really clear about this. And if we read John chapter three, it says, if, you, if you've not trusted Jesus, if you don't believe in him, the wrath of God is on you. The reason we recoil, we, we resist that, we don't like that. I, I don't think anybody sitting there is like, oh, I love the wrath of God in my life. This is great. Bring another cup of coffee. Let me put my feet up. This is wonderful. Nobody. We recoil at this thought that God's wrath and anger, and, and it's not how we talk, and now there's those in evangelicalism that say, oh, no, that's bad talk. It's, it's about God's love. You know, love wins. That's what's going to win, and yet what do we do with this? What Do we do? I take a big black pen and stroke that out of my Bible? I don't like this. And the reason we recoil at this kind of talk is that we don't actually see our sin as bad as it really is. I don't look at my sin as bad as it actually is. And the reason I don't see my sin as as that bad is because I, Steve Jantz, am focused on the wrong thing. I look at myself. And I look at somebody else and I what do I do when the minute I look I the minute I compare myself to somebody else, I can always find somebody who's worse than me. It's like, well, but at least I'm not like that guy. Or she's, she's terrible. She's wicked. I'm not that bad. And we somehow smooth over or soothe over our own sinfulness, and um, we, we're looking at the wrong thing. And... If, if I were to say one other thing, it's, it's, it's that the other reason we resist is because in our pride, we, we don't like to actually be called out on stuff. Like, there's enough pride in all of us that says, just hang on. Who? And for those of you who don't know me, you might be actually in your mind saying, who do you think you are, Steve Jantz from Miller College of the Bible, telling me that I'm under God's wrath and I'm sinful and that God's going to pour out his indignation. Who do you think you are? That's pride that's going to resist that. You know what the Bible says about pride? That God will resist the proud, but oh, He'll pour out the grace on the humble. So you humble yourself, you say, actually, I'm a sinful person. I do deserve God's anger and His wrath on me. His indignation is right, it's justly deserved. And I humble myself, then He's ready to pour out His grace. You see, if we're focusing on the right thing, perhaps we're able to see how bad things really are. And you know what the right thing is? It's God himself. Suppose I, suppose I had a, a black doily. Okay, usually doilies are white, but for this, the sake of this illustration, and it works in this room, suppose I have a black doily, and that black doily represents your life and all the sin and gunk and muck in it. And I take that black doily, and I put it against this black background here. You see that black background? How well will you be able to see that doily? Not very well. It's kind of hidden with all the other junk. And, and if you're trying to look at the blackness of that doily and you compare it to another black surface, another person, or whatever, it's not gonna look that bad. But suppose that we had a, a brilliantly white screen, like, like bright white that it would almost hurt the eyes to look at it, and then I placed that black doily in front of that white surface, would you be able to see it? Would there be a contrast? There would be a contrast. And if we get a better glimpse of how majestic, this comes back to God's glory, if we would get a a better glimpse of how majestic, how great, how absolutely pure, how absolutely holy and righteous God really is, then by God's grace we might see the terrible sinfulness and nastiness of our own life. And I might respond differently than when I'm comparing it to another black surface. The Bible says I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, that I pursue my own fleshly desires and passions, a follower of the world. Not only do I follow the world, I follow the devil. And he's duping me into thinking that I'm going to be satisfied with lesser things than Jesus. And because of all that, because of my sinfulness, God's wrath is on me. I'm a child by nature, a child of wrath. And you, friend this morning, are a child of God's wrath. I want you to turn, and I'm going to illustrate this. We still have a few minutes. Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and in this little story, we see, you know, we, we're talking about um, actually seeing our sinfulness for what it is. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, as is a young man, actually gets a glimpse of God's holiness to the degree that he recognizes how sinful he actually is. And oh, that God would be gracious this morning in this theater room to just remind us, that he would just simply remind us of how whole he is, so that we might get a glimpse of how sinful we really are. That would be my desire this morning. So Isaiah chapter six, and we'll just read the first. I um, yeah, will read the first seven verses. Follow, you can follow along. in the In the year of King Uzziah, and I, I could spend a whole sermon just or more on this text, but this is an illustration, so I can't. This morning, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. This is Isaiah seeing this in the temple. Each had six wings, these angels, these seraphim, six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. You can't even draw something like this. You can try, but it's not gonna do justice to what Isaiah saw that day. This is, this is supernatural. This is, not, this is not natural. This is above nature. This is an angel. These angels in God's holy temple, six wings, two covering their eyes, two their feet, and with two of them they flew. So this six-winged being. Verse 3. And one called to another and said, In the temple... These beings, and I'm guessing it wasn't a whisper. I'm guessing they weren't being quiet or passive about this. I'm guessing these angels bellowed this out loudly. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is filled with his glory. There it is, majesty, splendor, beauty. And everything we see in nature is just a small little glimpse of how great and how big God is. When we look at nature, those things should just be a springboard for us to even think and imagine how great God is, how glorious he is. And, and these angels call back to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And, and when this happened, and these angels were saying this back and forth, it says the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and, and he places it on the very place where Isaiah confesses he was a sinful person. I'm a man of unclean lips and live amongst the people of unclean lips. And the angel touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away from you and your sin is atoned for and covered. God doesn't see your sin anymore. It's an amazing story, a stunning story of of a human being encountering a glimpse of God's glory. And it's just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse The word holy in the Hebrew means sacred and pure and consecrated. And this is what Isaiah sees in this temple. He sees how holy God is, how sacred God is, how pure he is, how consecrated God is. And with that backdrop of God's holiness, Isaiah places himself and in his mind's eye, he sees how desperately wicked and sinful and black he is. And it all starts to make really scary sense to him. He says, oh shoot, well he doesn't say that. He says, woe is me, which is like saying, oh shoot, in our vernacular, we we don't walk around saying, woe is me, I mean, not usually. But we might say, oh shoot, this is not good. This is not good. And Isaiah cries out and says, woe is me. It's an expression of distress. He recognizes he's in trouble. King James says, I'm ruined. He says here, I'm finished. I'm laid to waste. He's basically saying, Oh, shoot, I'm as good as dead. That's what Isaiah is saying. Because probably for the first time in his life, he actually sees his sinfulness for what it really is with the backdrop of God's holiness. And he recognizes, I'm done. I'm finished. I mean, God's holiness is an amazing thing. So holy. God is so holy that when the sin of the world is placed on Jesus on the cross, we know what happens. Darkness covers the, 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 the earth, and the Father turns his face from his Son because he cannot even stand to look at his Son who's now bearing the sin, your sin and my sin. That's how holy God is. And something, to, I mean, I, give me a theological box for that. How, how does God separate himself from himself? I don't know what's going on in that moment, but all I know is that God, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something supernaturally cosmic is going on there because Jesus is now the sin bearer, the one who's carrying your sin to the cross, taking your punishment. Remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and God was going to give them his law And his desires for what it should look like for his people to be holy, to be consecrated, to be pure. And remember the Mount Mount Sinai? It's an amazing story. You can read it in Exodus chapter 19. Don't do it now. Finish listening. this afternoon. Exodus 19. and, And God descends on that mountain and he says to Moses to tell the people, Make sure that nobody comes too close to that mountain. You should draw near, but don't touch the mountain. Don't come up to the mountain. Even any living animal that comes onto the mountain while I'm there will die because God's holiness descends on the mountain. Enveloped with smoke, th- the, the, the thing starts to shake, and the people are terrified. They don't even come close. And once again, God in his grace demonstrates and shows how holy, how pure and, and, and all, as frightening as that is, there's this excitement to it, too. That's how God's created us. He's created us with this, this, this awe. I want to see. Why do people, I've heard this is not why do people walk as close to the Grand Canyon, the edge of the Grand Canyon, as they can? Like, why do people do that? Or hang glide? Why do people hang glide or go skydiving or whatever it is? Because there's, there's joy and fear. Right? There's a degree of joy, and, and in a much greater sense, when God demonstrates his holiness, there's, oh, there's this, this sense of, man, I'm like Isaiah, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm ruined, but oh, there's this draw to that. There's this desire to know that better, to know God, this holy God, better. And uh, Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm done, I'm guilty. And this is an emotional response. Isaiah feels this, he feels it. Let me, let me land the plane here. I was going to give you a great illustration about a skunk, but maybe I'll start with that next week. <laughs> Here's the point. Here's the point. The travesty of our sin, the enormity of our sin, the magnitude of our sin, the bigness of the consequences of our sin will always be proportionate to our understanding of God's holiness. So the bigger... God appears to you, the holier he appears to you, the more magnificent he is to us, the greater our sin will appear. And so, you know, there's this, this is where we're going to stop today. <laughs> it's the shocking bad news of the gospel that your sin actually demands God to be angry at you and will pour out his wrath unless you find a way of escape, and there is, and this is, this is the good news, Right? But, but I, I I want this shocking bad news of the gospel to settle in your minds and your hearts today and this week. can you just would you ask, oh God, would, would the enormity of my sin, even as a follower of you, Lord jesus, would would my past sin and the things that I struggle with today, would that would you just would you just ask, spirit of God, would you allow that to settle in my mind and my heart? It's got to move us to a place of hopelessness and helplessness because it's only a hopeless and helpless person who recognizes they need salvation, who, they need to be saved. If there's somebody struggling in the middle of Okanagan Lake, dying out there, but they don't recognize they're dying, will they call for help? They will not. Only the person who recognizes, oh shoot, I'm done, I'm, I'm in need for a savior, will say, help! Help me out here! Help! I need help! Save me, please! And these truths of Ephesians chapter Two, one, two, and three, all of this should cause in all of our hearts the sense of helplessness that we really are damned in our natural state, that that, that, um, that I'm absolutely incapable of rescuing and saving myself, and this truth needs to overwhelm us, this truth needs to move our emotions, this truth needs to shock us, because it's only then we're going to be humble enough to cry out, and God gives grace to the humble so Can I maybe just stop here and say to you, though, don't leave hopeless because the next two words in this text are amazing. But God, but God, there's hope. There's hope, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us comes to rescue you and me. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never thrown yourself on him you should not leave in utter despair without first coming to him well not before you should you don't need to live in utter despair anymore there are people who are going to be at the back after the service and just tap somebody even with a one of those lanyards on and say I, I need some prayer i i don't like this idea of god's wrath being on me but but i understand you have good news for me and they will show you how jesus can save you today And if you know Jesus, and I'm guessing that's the majority of you this morning, you know Jesus today, let the weight of your sin rest on your mind and heart a little bit. But oh, don't wallow there, brother, sister. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that all that ugliness in your life was taken care of at the cross for you by Jesus. And he's rescued you. So don't wallow there. Don't live there. Because when you understand the weightiness of your sin, oh, how glorious the gospel really is. So that's where we're going to go next week. And next week's going to be not so much of a downer. (laughs) Okay? So come back. Lord, thank you so much that we have your word. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that, that before we can grasp the fullness of the gospel message, we need to wrestle with some of these heavy, hard issues of our sinfulness and what we are without you. So God, come, speak to our hearts, be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.